uh, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful acts of love and of sacrifice that we see in our society and in our world is the reality of adoption. I understand like many things in our broken world, this can be a broken reality too, but at its best, it's a beautiful picture of love and of redemption and of sacrifice and of embrace and of welcome. And because that's true, it should not surprise us that this idea of adoption is actually central to our Christian faith. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm saying if you are serious about following Jesus, you've got to adopt children into your family, though I would suggest maybe we ought to be open to that, uh, that concept, uh, if God would so lead us. Rather, what I would say to you is that this idea of adoption is central to what it means to be Christian. Uh, One of the most important theological books that's been written really in the last centuries by a revered uh, theologian named J.I. Packer, and this is what he says about adoption. He says, our understanding of Christianity can be no better than our grasp of adoption. You get his point. That is, if we don't understand adoption in terms of our faith, then we really don't understand what our faith is actually all about. Well, one of the places that this idea of adoption is really spoken about uh, in depth is in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. So, if you've copied the scriptures, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have one with you, no worries. We're going to have it up on the screen for you. Uh, Ephesus is uh, a church that uh, Paul helped start and now is uh, writing to them uh, later on. And as Paul often does, uh, for those of you familiar with Paul, Paul was one of the early uh, preachers and uh, missionaries for the church who went around and uh, spoke and, and saw new churches start. Uh, when he writes letters back to these churches, one of the things that he often does in the beginning is speaks about our identity as Jesus' people, as followers of Jesus. Because when he gets to, towards the end of the letter, when he wants to, to suggest to them maybe some changes in how they live or the choices they make, he wants that to be founded in who they are. Uh, and maybe he doesn't do a better job anywhere Then in the book of Ephesians. This is beautiful. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship, through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, uh, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. 
In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, (coughs) who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Incredible truth about who we are. So why does he use the word adoption? Uh, And if you kind of read along there with me and were picking up his uh, his vibe, this idea of adoption is center to everything that he's talking about. Uh, What does he mean by adoption? Why does he use that language? Well, uh, it shouldn't surprise us that what he means by adoption is what we think that adoption means. Adoption is an act of God to welcome us into his family as sons and daughters. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul means. It's what he's talking about, and it's what he wants us to know. So last Sunday, we talked about the reality of Easter, and that in Easter, God launches a new family in Jesus. And because of this, all kinds of possibilities emerge for us. But the question remains, excuse me, how do we get into this new family? My voice is not cooperating today. But we'll plug away. And Paul's answer is the way that you get into this new family is through this idea of adoption. More specifically, through Jesus, he says. Adopted through Jesus. It is because of Jesus' work on the cross and his power in his resurrection, this new family that is launched is made available to us. But there's more going on there. It's the idea that we are actually joined to Jesus. That we're united to him. And because of that, we have access to everything that God has always intended for us. This is who you are. Listen, living in this world is difficult. You want to know why it's the most difficult? Because everyone and anyone tries to tell us who we are, tries to give us our value. Your job tries to give you your value based on your performances or your reviews or your salary status. Your kids try to give you your value based upon the decisions that you've made for them that particular day or that particular Moment. Relationships give us values based upon what we're offering in them. And because we are so susceptible to these governing realities, we find ourselves enslaved by them, trying to produce and perform in order to be something of worth. And Paul says, can I give you the key to let you out of those chains? This is who you are. You're adopted. And because of that, everything God has always intended for his creation and for us as human beings is possible if you're in this new family. So, 
how can we kind of take these 15 or so verses and make them somewhat accessible for us? And I want to suggest to you three kind of big ideas that I think will help us. The first big idea is that adoption demonstrates God's genuine heart. There are a lot of mistruths about God out there. God is angry. He's vengeful. He's just looking for us to mess up so he can strike us down or crush us. He's a cosmic cop that's just waiting for us to screw things up. And, and, and while God has a standard for how we live, while, while our brokenness leads to our separation from him, that's actually not at the core of who God is. And Paul wants us to remember this. And adoption speaks to that reality. At its core, God is love. God is not just kind of uh, uh, ooey-gooey, schmooshy kind of love. It's like love that's like self-directed and, and pursuing us with incredible intent and vigor until we receive him back. Think about some of the statements that Paul makes in these verses. He says, He chose us according to his good pleasure. What on earth does that mean? Now, oftentimes we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of theology, right? Well, what does he chose us to mean? Does that mean God makes us do everything we are? We're robots and all of that stuff. Listen, <clears throat> that's a fair debate to have at some other time. It's actually not what Paul's getting at here. He wants you to know that God chose you. It's a love statement more than it is a sovereignty or depth of, theologi- depth of theology statement. That when God looked... <laughs> At the spectrum of things, he said, I want her or him in my family. One of the things about adoption that is almost universally true is that is it initiated by adoptive parents, not an idea of children who themselves become adopted. And this is true of our God too. That he comes for us that he chooses us and, crazy enough, according to his good pleasure, that he loves it, that this is his good idea that gets him super excited. And let's remind ourselves of something. God doesn't choose blindly. He's well aware of who he's choosing, right? He's well aware of our deficiencies, our inabilities. He's well aware of the baggage we bring to the family, He's well aware of uh, the limited scope of what we can offer to this new family, and yet, it's exactly what he wants. Why? Because God is the creator and sustainer of all things. He made you, and he loves you desperately, chooses you. And it's according to his pleasure. And then Paul says that this choice actually happens, is predestined, actually happens before the foundation of the world. <clears throat> Excuse me, the idea being that this was always God's idea. That adoption wasn't some newfangled thing that he uh, came up with a couple thousand years ago. That God was always after bringing his people together again in this new family. Now think about the implications of that with me for just a minute. The first reality is that that therefore means 
that none of this could ever be earned. (laughs) If this was God's intention from the beginning of time, then your resume had not been built up yet (laughs) for being adoption worthy, right? This is all based on God's love for you. This should reveal to us God's heart of what he actually thinks about us. What's furthermore then, is however old you believe the earth is, and that's really irrelevant, the idea is that from the beginning of time, God has been on a a mission of adoption for you. That from the beginning of time, God has been intent to see you welcomed into his family. He's relentless in his pursuit of you. Uh, Rachel and I went to a small college in uh, Bucks County, um, right outside Philadelphia, uh, and met lots of great people there. Uh, One of the guys uh, that I became friends with, uh, his name was Jeff, and Jeff was uh, sort of just like a regular guy, right? Um, You know, a nice guy, but it wasn't wasn't the best-looking guy, uh, wasn't um, the most talented guy. Uh, wasn't a guy who you would necessarily say was like super popular. He was just kind of like a nice guy. Uh, but Jeff had his eyes set on a girl named Bethann. Uh, and Bethann was like super pretty, super popular, and I had everything together. It was kind of the match that everyone was like, Jeff, listen, we know that you like kind of like her, but like, can we just say, maybe not, maybe <laughs> this isn't going to work out. But he went on, a, he had a four-year mission. <laughs> it was relentless. And, and he was charming and cute and served her. And then finally, their senior year, when he found out that she was sick, <clears throat> he heated up a bowl of Campbell's chicken noodle soup, what college students can afford, right? And he delivered it to her doorstep, and he won her heart. And they are married with kids now. Like, this is an incredible story, right? And when I think about this idea of God being on this lifelong, creation-long mission to woo us, to pursue us, to love us, like, that's what comes to mind. How incredible is the truth of who God is? Do you see His heart for who He actually is in this truth of adoption? The third thing that that Paul says that that shows us God's heart here is he says, listen, this is about redemption. And redemption kind of has like a a positive connotation in our reality, uh, and as well it should. But really the idea of redemption, what that really means is that it was super costly. Uh, Redemption means someone had to pay a price for this to happen. Uh, it was an incredible price. So we celebrated on Good Friday and, and then uh, again on Easter that this is what the cross is that wins the redemption for us. Now this idea of redemption isn't a word that we should understand outside of its context because in its very context, it has incredible meaning in the first century world Uh, in which Jesus lived and Paul lived and this church at Ephesus was receiving this letter. And the word redemption or buying back was used in the slave trade, which was rampant in those days. 
And so in every, every major town, there was a slave market. We don't agree with this. We don't, but it, it, it was the culture of the day. And so this idea of redeeming men, in essence, to go into the slave trade, to pay the price for the slave, and then ultimately to walk to the court of law and to set them free legally. This is the imagery that Paul's using, and what better imagery to use? Because this is what the cross is all about. That if Jesus was actually, if God was actually through Jesus going to set us free, if he actually was going to redeem us, he had to go to the place where we were, right? It kind of makes sense for me like this. A couple of years ago, um, I took on the challenge of buying Christmas presents for my nieces and nephews. If you know anything about me, I never should have signed up for this job. Uh, and my nieces and nephews were not too happy to hear that Uncle Adam was in charge of their gifts. But I had an idea of what I was going to do. Um, <clears throat> and I can tell you that for my nephews, it was super easy. Because uh, I know how to get them um, uh, a sports t-shirt that they're interested in or, or that kind of thing. But for my one and only niece on this side of the family, uh, who was a preteen at the time, her list of ideas came from this crazy store called Justice. You ever heard of this store before? Oh, you're beginning to get the picture here, right? Because I tried to devise plans in which I could accomplish getting things from Justice without having to go into the store of Justice for a number of reasons. Uh, chief amongst them, the weirdness of me walking in there by myself with no one else trying to buy things in this store. And of course, you know how it goes. I had to go there to get the gifts. And my niece was pretty happy with the bath bombs that her uncle picked out for her. <laughs> and this is the idea of the cross. This is what we, get. we sometimes miss the idea of what Jesus is actually doing. Because we're trapped to death because of our rebellion. The only way that we can be set free is if someone is actually willing to go to the place where we're chained up. This is what the cross is. This is how redemption happens. Unless someone comes to the slave market, they can't pay the price for the slave to be set free. What God has done in redeeming us is beautiful. And it shows us his heart. A couple of years ago, uh, we moved. Uh, and as we were trying to get our house ready to put on the market, uh, Rach and I were bantering back and forth, asking the question, uh, what do you even suggest is a list price for a house? How, how do you even know? And our realtor spoke to us, and, and man, this has given me so much truth way beyond selling houses. And she said to us, listen, here's the cold hard truth. Uh, you may think you know what your house is worth, but your house is only worth what someone will pay for it. Friends, that's the gospel, right? You want to know how much you're worth? I'll tell you how much you're worth. You're only worth the price someone is willing to pay for you. And so the weekend that we just celebrated last weekend should blow you away. This world will never value you like God values you. Your job will never give you the value that God gives you. Your relationships in this life will never give you the value that Jesus paid for you. What a beautiful truth of who God is. 
And then Paul uses the word lavish, right? He says he lavishes on us the riches of his grace. The idea meaning he didn't just do enough, right? When I went to justice, you know, I had the, what, I don't know how much money we spend, 30, 40, 40, 50 dollars, whatever. Like I knew what I needed to do and I spent that much money and I got out of Dodge, right, as quickly as possible. This is not the picture of who God is. He just gives lavishly. It's like a flood flowing down on us. Incredible. Way more than we could have ever expected God to give us. How wonderful God is. And how do we know that this is lavish? Because when God welcomes us into his family, he doesn't simply do it as paid for servants. Nor does he do it as welcomed house guests. But he calls us sons and daughters. Astounding. This is God's heart. This is the God we serve and worship. This is what adoption means. Second big idea that I think happens here in these verses from Paul is the reality that adoption is certain. Or maybe better said, final. There's two, uh, two words or phrases that I want to pick up on here. Did you notice that, that uh, Paul says we are adopted to sonship, right? It's an interesting word, sonship. Now, one of the reasons that we use the NIV translation in the public reading of Scripture here, uh, a couple of reasons. One, largely because it's the easiest to read and understand, but also because it brings it into the culture of our day. It, it, it adds gender neutrality where gender neutrality is needed, right? Because in the days in which the Scriptures were written, it was a male-dominated society, and everything was written in terms of men. And so... Uh, It would talk about sons instead of sons and daughters, or sons instead of children. So you ask yourself then, well, why does it keep the word sonship here? Why doesn't it talk about childrenship, or make up another word like that? Because this word is actually a legal word. It actually means granting the status of inheritance as a male heir in a family. Uh, And to be a male heir is significant then, not now, because in those days, we don't agree with this, but in that day, to be a a daughter (laughs) did not mean that you received inheritance, but to be a son meant that you were deemed inheritance. And so it's important for us, even if you want to change this word in your own thinking, fair enough, but it's important for us to see this, to understand exactly what Paul's conveying to all of us, men and women, that we have become inheritors of the full inheritance that God offers. It is a legal status that has been bestowed upon us. It's final. It's certain. And this means that all the promises, the blessings that God has suggested are available, now become fully accessible for us. Do you see this? Now, If you are astute, as I think you are, you're saying, well, I know there's a lot of blessings in the Bible that I am currently not experiencing. And I would say to you, fair enough. A couple of caveats to say, right? The first is that all of the blessings and the promises that God has given are actually bestowed upon Jesus. We access them through Jesus. 
This is why all through these verses, it talks about in Christ, or in Him, or in whom. The idea is that all the blessings have actually fallen upon Jesus, and rightly so. Jesus is the Son who is the heir. How do we get that inheritance? If we're joined to Jesus, right? God promises full or eternal life. How do we get that? If we're in Jesus. God promises peace that passes all understanding. How do we access that? In Jesus. Now listen, you've got to remember that positionally, we, if we've believed, are all in Jesus now, but progressively we are all kind of in Jesus, but not in Jesus until Jesus comes to set all things right. And so sometimes we feel that peace and sometimes we don't. And the reason we don't is because we're not in Christ in those moments. Does that make sense? Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says that in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Right? In Christ. So the thing that we're all longing for, to have true value, true purpose, true identity, the experience of full life is now completely accessible to us because we have that inheritance so long as we live in Christ. Incredible. But that's not the only phrase that that Paul uses here. He also uses the phrase that we are sealed by the Spirit. Did you catch that phrase kind of towards the end of that passage? Or marked by the Spirit. He says this is a deposit guaranteeing our full inheritance. So, We often talk here about already, not yet, right? We experience already this full blessings of God, but not fully yet. And Paul's using that language here again. We're marked by the Spirit of God. In essence, that we can be certain that this is finished and that this is final and that this is certain because we've been sealed by the Spirit. The idea there is almost like branded. Right? Or, or like taking God's name. As we kind of go through the series over the next coming weeks, we'll talk about marriage imagery an awful lot. Because that's how Jesus talks about us. That Jesus is the bridegroom and, and His people are the bride. And that that's how we're welcomed into this family. In essence, We're taking God's name. We're coming into this family and legally taking His name by being marked by Him. This is a super popular TV show that's uh, that's on right now called Yellowstone. Some of you might be familiar with it. Uh, And it's a a compelling show. Uh, Compelling because of some of the imagery of love. Compelling because of the the realities of the chaos and violence that power and uh, rebellion bring in our world as well. But central to this, this show is the Dutton family who owned the Yellowstone Ranch. And one of the realities is they've got wranglers and cowboys and all these things. But there's a group of people who live there amongst them who have been branded with the Y for the Yellowstone Ranch. And without uh, exception, these are people who have a sordid past, uh, but who have been welcomed into this family and have full access to it, but now bearing this brand 
have a responsibility to carry out on behalf of the family. Now here's kind of where the analogy falls apart because the responsibility they have does not line up at all with the responsibility that, that we have. So if you watch the show, kind of know that that's where things go differently. But this is kind of the imagery that Paul talks about here, isn't it? We've been marked by God and therefore we're his, which means that we have certain to this full life, but it also means that there's a new way for us to live. You see this? Which leads us perfectly into the third and final big idea, which is that adoption means that our lives have a new trajectory. Adoption means that our lives have a new trajectory. So we should pause here and make this statement known. That is that adoption is not a forced reality. That God does not adopt you and say, you have no choice in this matter. We know that because some of the language that happens in these verses, that this is spoken of as for those who have believed, right? Or for those who have placed their hope in Christ. And so the idea is that God is asking you to choose into this family. But if you do choose into this family, it means a whole new trajectory for your life. That we would actually be like God. Did you catch those words from the very beginning of the section we read? That we were chosen to be holy and blameless. Right? Does that mean perfect in the now? No. It means to be people who are like God, who are representing God to this world, who, who take on the culture of who God is. In the same way that when someone is adopted into a family, over time they become more and more like that family, embracing that culture, embracing the values that that family holds. This is exactly how God speaks of us in welcoming us into His family that we would be people who live like Him and demonstrate His values and intentions for our world. And then, one of the most compelling phrases in all of this, used three times by Paul in this whole section, is this idea that it's for the praise of His glory. Did you catch that as we were reading through it? For the praise of His glory. That our life takes on a new trajectory because we become people who are consumed with praising God and seeking His glory. Incredible. The idea here is that it's instinctual, right? That over time it becomes just instinctual that because of this reality of adoption, because of understanding God's heart and all that He's done in welcoming us into His family, we can't help but to live our lives in response of praising God for who He is and what He's done. That's in our singing and in our words, but it's also in how we live and orient our lives. We're praising Him. If any of you have been watching the NBA playoffs, right? We've got to do that because the Phillies kind of stink right now. So we're watching Sixers basketball, and I love the Sixers, so I'm happy to do it. And they go up 2-0 against the Toronto Raptors, and they go into Toronto for Game 3, and they're behind the whole game. Uh, and, and it comes down to the final shot of the game as uh, they've actually brought it back and tied it up, and they take this outlandish shot, and of course it doesn't go in, so we go to overtime, right? 
And in overtime, it comes down to the same scenario, except now there's like 2.9 seconds left. The game is tied, and the Sixers have eight-tenths eight of a second to get a shot off before the time clock expires. And so they quick inbound it from the sideline, and Joel Embiid, seven foot one or however tall he is of him, jumps up and launches this three-pointer from the corner, and it hits nothing but net so perfectly. Like you hear that, that rip sound that comes through, and the net pops up through the other side, and I'm upstairs in my bed with this sinus infection or whatever's going on, laying straight down, overwhelmed by it. You know what happened in that moment? Man, I was up before you could ever know it. I was screaming. I was excited. I was, it was instinctual, right? It just moved me to praise. This is what Paul's saying. If we get adoption, we should have responses like that all the time. It should be instinctual. We're blown away by what's just happened. This shouldn't have happened. How could this happen? And it did. And it's glorious and beautiful. And it's who we are. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer goes on to say about adoption that if this reality of adoption in some way doesn't govern how we pray, how we praise, how we live our lives, then what it truly demonstrates is we've understood very little about Christianity itself. A powerful statement, but absolutely true. The idea meaning that we should regularly be blown away that we've been adopted into this new family that God has created through Jesus. That it should astound us 50 years after we've believed as much as it did the first moment we actually came to grips with it. That it should have incredible ramifications on the choices we make in our lives. The smallest choices for how to order our everyday life to the biggest choices to, to how to parent and how to live and, and, and how to be a good neighbor and all of these things are actually acts of worship long before they're acts of obedience. Paul says this is all to the praise of his glory. Stunning and incredible. On Easter, the resurrection means that God has launched a new family. Well, that's wonderful. (laughs) But it means nothing to us unless we're allowed to be part of it. But the truth of adoption that Paul speaks of so powerfully here, as well in the book of Galatians, as well as in the book of Romans, as well as the the Apostle John speaks about in, in his letters and in his gospel, show us that, no, this new family was always intended for us. And when I say us, I mean everyone. If you would only believe. To believe means you have to see God's heart for what it actually is. Not the characterizations that this world has made of it. And when you believe, you can be certain that it is final. But because it's final, it also changes dramatically how we live. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be taking time to tease that out. What does it mean to change some of our lives' trajectories because we're part of this new family? Specifically, 
we understand we're leaving a family behind when we join this new family of God. And so what does that mean? How do we do that? Uh, what are the implications of that? And then a couple of weeks later, talking about what does it mean to pick up this ethos of this new family, the character? How do we live that way and what does it mean? I'm excited to keep taking this journey with you. Can we pray together?